Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's this famous illustration that many of you may be familiar with. It's told in business schools particularly, but I think it's taught in general in many different places. But in a business school class, we might have a professor come up to the front and try to teach you time management using a jar and rocks. Is anybody familiar with this illustration? A few of you. Let me run through it again, just in case you didn't. You see how that the business school stage life, like many of What the professor will do is come up with a, with a jar and several rocks of different sizes and shapes. And the jar represents, the professor might say, this jar represents your time. The amount of time that you have in your life. And these rocks represent the amount of things that you have going on in your life. Each rock is a different task. And so, if you try to put the smallest rocks in first, what's going to end up happening is they all settle at the bottom. Even though it's more uh, self, uh, if you feel a little more self-congratulatory every time you check off another little pack, because they're easy to check off. But when you put the little rocks in first, then you have the bottom of the jar is full and it will not fit more large rocks. And so what the professor says is that if you want to actually squeeze all the things that you have to do in life into your limited amount of time, what you actually have to do is find your hardest task, your biggest task, and your most important tasks, especially the most important ones, and put them into the jar first. And after you get your most important task into the jar, then you can put the medium-sized task, or the second most important task, then you can put the smallest task in, and all this kind of squeezes in there. Now, this illustration has been personally beneficial to me. I have gained a lot out of it. It actually helps me when I think about this. Uh, when I wake up on a Wednesday morning and there's tasks that I don't want to do, and it's like that one's the most important, and even though it's easier and feels more, uh, feels more satisfying to check off these little tasks, it's so much more satisfying to have like, this long list of things to do, and I can check off 19 of them, but the two that are left are like, take four hours each, you know? So it's helpful for me to be like, no, I actually need to do the big ones, and then like, let the little ones find their way in there. It's been helpful for me, but I have a problem. And I think it's a universal problem with this illustration. Here's the problem, my jar is this large, and I've got rocks that go up to here. And it doesn't matter what order I put those rocks in, they're all things that I value. They're not going to sleep through that. Anybody relate with me? I've got too many big rocks to go into a jar. And what I do is I start putting the big rocks in. And I say, well, the professor told me to put the big rocks in. And then I'm cramming it in there, and then the jar breaks. And I'm going to wrap on the floor, just crying. Like, what have I done with my life? I can't complete anything. I can't finish any of my tasks. Not to mention the fact that God tells me to rest one day a week. God made us in his own image. And part of being made in the image of God means that we're people who work. 
for people who complete tasks, for people who have a job to do. God gave us a job to do. He told us to fill the world and to subdue it. And so God blesses our work, but he also tells us, that's what we talked about last week, but he also tells us that there's more to life than completing tasks. He also tells us that there's more to life than just getting work done. Tell us the rest. I mentioned this book a few weeks ago. It's been helpful to me. It's a completely secular book. If I was not a Christian, this might be kind of like my secular Bible in many ways. It's called 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. And in the book, basically, the whole premise of the book is that the average human lifespan is 4,000 weeks. You live for 4,000 years. And the author is really helpful in how he describes that in a limited amount of time. Because what the author says is that 4,000 weeks is not enough. You're not going to finish all that you want to finish in 4,000 weeks. Hear what he says. He says this. You will settle. You will settle. You can't become an ultra-successful lawyer or artist or politician without first settling on law or art or politics, and therefore deciding to forego the potential rewards of other careers. If you flip between them all, you'll succeed in none. Likewise, there's no possibility for a romantic relationship being truly fulfilling unless you're willing, at least for a while, to settle for that specific relationship with all the sense of ocean. Which means spurning the seductive lure of an infinite number of superior imaginary alternatives. For those of us who just enough, you have too many things to do. To do them all. Not just to do, but in your lifetime. You just will never accomplish all that you want to accomplish. You will leave dreams undone. Being a Christian is that we have all eternity to explore, to play, to enjoy the created work of the new heavens and the earth. But in this life, you simply won't have enough. And yet, 4,000 weeks is not enough. When we come to this passage and we see God bought off one set of those 4,000 weeks. You don't even get the 4,000 weeks, church. God, God rested one day. And he tells us in the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath, to keep it holy. And so Christians only have 3,429 weeks a year. Oh, a year. <laughs> weeks in a lifetime of productive time. That your contemporaries, your classmates, your co-workers, they get 16% more time than you do to achieve their dreams, to be productive. I can think of nothing in the Cambridgeville area that can separate us as Christians more powerfully from our co-workers and our friends this idea of we intentionally stop doing things. Because our friends are always accomplishing, always striving, always achieving. And yet Christians, 
He made them to God. Take a step back and take an entire day each week to enjoy the fruit of our life. To enjoy life, to rest. But we don't worry about climbing the corporate ladder. Rest is not meant to be an obnoxious distraction to your work. The thing is, most people choose one or the other of these two options. They either work to rest, or they rest to work. You know people who do one of those two. They either work to rest, or they rest to work. What I mean by rest to work means you see your rest day as a day to recharge, as a day to just get ready for another week of work. And what I mean by work to rest means the folks who don't really put their heart into their job, they don't care about their job, they're just there to make a few bucks so that they can have another day off. But you know what? He gives this unique perspective where he's not working to rest or resting to work, but he says both good. Work good, rest good. And it's an awesome balance that he teaches us. I just want you to focus on for one second. God wrestles. The omnipotent, all-powerful God of the universe, creator of all things, creator of time itself, rested. He took a day off. Why? Why did he rest? The very nature of being omnipotent means that your power cannot be drained from you whatsoever. God could have created all of the universe in one day, and then he could have just continued to do that throughout eternity, infinity. Infinity. And never had any of his power depleted from him. He's completely omnipotent. So it wasn't because he was tired that he was resting. God didn't rest out of exhaustion, but God rested out of joy. He took an entire day to simply be satisfied with the fruit of his labor. Let's look at this passage again and hear it again, church. Look at it. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. That should be the end of this chapter, honestly. If, you, if, you, if Genesis 1 is about the creative works of God, it's done. You can move on to the next thing. But instead, the author takes a very special moment to tell us what God did after he finished. It says this. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Now, this little passage is really different than the other six days that we've looked at. Before we get there, I just want to point out that this. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 should really be in chapter 1, okay? This should be the end of chapter 1. And just in case you're not familiar with the Bible and the chapters and the verses, they weren't originally there. They were added in the, in the 16th century, in the 1500s, by a, name, a man named Stephanus. And you know, Stephanus, he's a man after my own heart. The most important thing that he ever did, we're still talking about it, 500 years later, still talking about what he did, he messes up on page 1, all right? He did not get very far without messing up. And it really should be in chapter 1 because it doesn't make sense that you would have a chapter break when you're still in the middle of this narrative about how God created the world in seven days. 
Anyways, rant over on that. The seventh day is unique from the other six days of creation. On days one through six, we hear God say, and we hear, we hear each day start like this, and God said, let there be whatever, light, sky, filling the world with animals. And on the seventh day, God doesn't say anything. He's silent. His work is over. The work is done. But the story isn't over. The author includes it anyways. He takes an entire day to enjoy his creation. On days one through six, they each end with there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the fifth day. But on the seventh day, church, there was no evening. There was no morning. It's a day without end. The author very intentionally tells us that God's work of creation is over and he just takes it to enjoy and it's a day without end. It's not just a day off for God. He's not just gearing up for another week of hard work. His work is done. It's completed. It is finished. It was a day to simply be, to exist, and to enjoy. Now last week we talked about how God created Eden. We're going to talk about Eden more next week. We talked about how God created Eden to be a bit of a temple on the earth. And so the way that Eden worked is that it was a place where God dwelled with people. And so when we talk about a temple, we think about God and people being together. A temple is a place where you go to experience the presence of God. And here, God took the seventh day, and he blessed it, and he set it apart, and he made it holy. And if you want to think about it like this, if it helps you think about it like this, he created a bit of a temple in time. And on the seventh day, when it is set apart and holy, as a temple is, you can experience the presence of God in a unique kind of way. The, this rhythm, the seven-day rhythm, is, is designed in each of us. I, I love reading about all the different ways that the seven-day rhythm is designed in us. Have you ever thought about this? Why do we break up our weeks into seven-day patterns? Why are we doing the same thing every Sunday, every Monday, every Tuesday? And why does every civilization on earth have a seven-day week? There's been a lot of research into different ways that our bodies work on this. In their book, The Secrets Our Body Clocks Reveal, Susan Perry and Jim Dawson point out that there are many biological systems that operate on a seven-day pattern, including our blood pressure cycle, our coping hormone cycle, immune responses, production of blood and urine chemicals, and even our heartbeats. Other civilizations have toyed with changing the work week. Right after the French Revolution in the late 1700s, the French decided that they would try a 10-day week. It was passed by whatever group, the parliament, I don't know what French were having at that moment, and they, they adopted it. And it lasted for 12 years with this 10-day week. 10 makes a lot more sense, right? It's a nice round number. But they... But they uh, decided to get rid of it when they saw a stark increase in injuries, exhaustion, illness, and work animals even collapsed and died at alarming rates. Similarly, for 11 years, the USSR tried getting rid of weekends completely. They went to a five-day week uh, where they had one day in there that you had for rest. But it changed 
And so you did not have the same day of rest as everybody else. This is a beautiful design for efficiency. If you were going to design an efficient system, this is it. There's always someone working, and one out of five days you get to rest. It failed miserably. Brilliant for efficiency, terrible for humans. We're made to function on a seven-day week. Woven inside of us is a seven-day cycle, a weekly reminder to rest. When we stop working, we are reminded that we are not an infinite creature with infinite power. Even the omnipotent God took a day to enjoy what he had. And so when you Sabbath, it's not because you got everything done and now you can take a day off. It's because you haven't gotten everything done. And you're reminded, try again next week. You're not going to finish it all. You have to intentionally step away. Sabbath was intended by God to be a beautiful gift for us. But sin messed that up. Instead of being something that we enjoy, the Sabbath has become a burden to the people of God. The Sabbath's been distorted, and we continue to distort it. There's two primary distortions to the Sabbath, two ways that we distort God's time to rest each week. There's a religious distortion and an irreligious distortion. Let's jump into this religious distortion of Sabbath, Sabbath first. Religion says, let me explain what, to, what I mean by religion first. Religion says, I obey therefore God loves me. I obey, therefore God loves me. If this is what you believe, then you become an ardent rule follower. You become someone that wants to know exactly what's expected of you so that you can follow all the rules so that God will be happy with you. The only problem is that the biblical instruction on keeping the Sabbath is a little slim because God says, keep the Sabbath, keep it holy, don't work or die. And that's pretty much the entire uh, explanation from God. He says, don't work or die. And that's a, he's trying to give you a consequence to where you'll actually keep the commandment. And so what ended up happening is the religious leaders of the day started coming up with extra biblical laws. They started coming up with different ways so that they knew that they were following the rules. They wanted to know what the rules were so that God would be happy with them. And so they came up with extra-biblical laws to give to well-meaning Israelites so that they could keep the Sabbath. They came up with things like, you can't walk more than half a mile from your house, or you cannot tie a knot. But then the people found ways around the very specific laws that they were coming up with. And for example, if you wanted to travel more than half a mile, or 2,000 cubits, what you would do if you wanted to travel down on the Sabbath is the day before the Sabbath, you would go about 2,000 cubits from your home, you would set up a tent, you would make another little home, and so on the Sabbath you could just travel from that home to the next home, and then you could travel another half mile because you're technically not traveling more than 2,000 cubits from your home. I don't think that that's what the original rule was intending to communicate, but they were finding ways around it. Similarly, you couldn't tie a knot with a rope, but it allowed women to tie their undergarments uh, and so what people would end up doing is lowering pails of water into wells using, uh, like, girdles. They were getting around the rules, finding ways to get around it. And this is the world that Jesus was born into. 
And Jesus just turns the whole thing upside down. He gets everybody angry when it comes to his teaching on the Sabbath. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be camping out for just a few minutes in Matthew chapter 11. Beautiful passage. We read it earlier, and we're going to go a little past it this morning. We're going to continue in what Jesus teaches about Sabbath. Matthew 11. Starting... In verse 28, and Jesus begins his teaching on Sabbath. The book of Matthew begins looking at how Jesus acted on the Sabbath, what he taught about the Sabbath with Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And he says this, Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is saying, you will never get the rest that your souls long for by following the rules, but you will get the rest that your souls long for only by coming to me. Only by coming to me. This is one of my favorite passages. I've preached it many times if you've been around the church. This is one that we come back to with some frequency because it's just such good news. Church, are you tired? Are you weary and heavy laden, worn out and exhausted, running the rat race? Jesus is saying, come to me. Come here. Come here, my son. Come here, my daughter. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I will give you rest, but not just physical rest. I will give you rest in the deepest parts of your soul. The scripture is full of descriptions of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. You read the book of Romans. It's all about what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. We as Christians talk about what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf all the time. But this passage is the only passage in the entire scripture that tells us about the very nature of Jesus' heart. It tells us who Jesus is, what he's like. We know what he's accomplished, but what is Jesus like? And Jesus describes himself here as saying, I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's a person that you want to come to, right? It's hard for me to approach people who are harsh and high in heart. But someone who's gentle and lowly in heart, who welcomes me with open arms and calls me to himself, becomes approachable. And this is our Savior. Jesus is calling us to receive the rest that we all long for. Right after this teaching, the gospel writer does a fantastic job of explaining in more detail what Jesus means. Because right after Matthew 11, look at the scriptures with me, Matthew chapter 12, Matthew 11, verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verse, chapter 12, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. He's about to teach us something. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees, the Pharisees are the religious leaders, saw it, they said to him, look at your disciples. They're doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And so Jesus corrects them. 
You know, Jesus is radically different than what we think he is. Jesus is radically different than the way that he's been caricatured in the media. Jesus is constantly annoying the religious leaders. He's constantly making them angry. I don't know if you've ever tried correcting a religious leader. We tend to be a very self-righteous lot, all right? I wouldn't advise you to try to correct a religious leader. We respond poorly. But that's what Jesus does. He, re- he corrects them. He says, you've tragically misunderstood the beautiful gift of the Sabbath. This is not meant to be just another rule that you have to follow for God to be happy with you. This is meant to be a day full of enjoyment and pleasure. And then at the end of this, little section, verse 8, Jesus says, for the Son of Man, this is his favorite nickname for himself in the book of Matthew, he says, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now pay attention to that for just a second, because Lord of the Sabbath, not only is he claiming to be Lord over the Sabbath, meaning I have authority to teach you on the issues of the Sabbath, but he's claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning that he's the source of the Sabbath. That the seventh day rest comes through Jesus. In fact, when you go back to Genesis chapter 2, should be one, but when you go back back to Genesis chapter 2, what what God is doing is a symbol and a sign pointing us forward to the greater reality that we have in Christ. Sabbath is meant to be a reminder and a symbol pointing us to what Jesus has accomplished. He's the Lord of Christ. The Sabbath is a signpost to the greater reality of the deep soul rest that we can enjoy in Christ. I love the way that St. Augustine says it, or Augustine. He says, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. We all long for this deep rest. You can't get it through following the rules. You cannot get rest by rest without Jesus. That's the irreligious distortion. So that, that's the religious distortion. The irreligious distortion, on the other hand, looks at rest like this. You look at Sabbath like this. Only if I accomplish all of my tasks will my heart be satisfied. I've got so much on my plate, I need to finish it all. And when I finish it all, apart from what God's done for me, When I complete my work, then I will be happy. It's life devoid of God. And it's the life that most of us live in, including myself in time. If I don't finish this sermon by myself, I will not be happy. I go through the same thing, okay? I'm not exempt. The irreligious distortion says, if I do enough, I'll satisfy the longings in my own heart. I'll prove that I'm enough. If I do enough, I don't need anyone's help. If I work hard enough, I'll finish my work and I'll feel satisfied. There was this article in the Atlantic uh, a few years ago now written by a man named Derek Thomas, and it was great. And in it, he says that modern society is full of what he deems workists, which is basically a religious term. We've turned work into a religion. Workists who have made a secular religion out of the pursuit of status and professional fulfillment. 
when we attempt to find rest for our souls without God, what we end up doing is turning productivity into our God. We end up turning productivity into our God. But friends, productivity is a far worse God than our God. Productivity has no grace for you. Which is one reason why we like it, because we know what it takes to satisfy the God of productivity. If I get my stuff done, I'll feel satisfied with myself. The God of productivity will smile upon me. But when I don't get my stuff done, the rocks start to crush the jar, and I'm left in shambles. But the God of Scripture says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The God of the Scripture says, yeah, you're going to fail. You're not going to get it all done. I know you're not going to get it all done. And I love you, not because you've accomplished anything, but because of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. You see, this is the gospel, that we're not loved based upon what we accomplish, but what Christ has accomplished for us. Only when you realize that you are completely loved and accepted apart from anything that you could possibly accomplish will you receive the rest that you're actually looking for. You might satisfy the God of productivity and feel good for a Saturday, but that God just demands more sacrifices. More and more sacrifices. The God who hung the universe in the sky, who put the earth here in six days, and on the seventh day he said it is finished, is the same God who sent his son to live the perfect life that we can't live, who hung on a cross and in his dying words said, it is finished. The work is over. I no longer, you no longer need to work your way into God's approval. But he's approved of you in Christ. Meditate on this for a moment, church. If you need to close your eyes, I just want you to think about it. Say this to yourself. In your head. There's children in here. Okay, in your head. Um, I'm not defined by my work. I'm not defined by my productivity. I'm not defined by my success. I'm not defined by my morality or their lack of. I'm accepted and loved because of what Jesus has accomplished for me. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. You see, church, Jesus' love isn't even unconditional. It's beyond that. Jesus' love is contra-conditional. He doesn't just say, I'll love you no matter what you do. He says, I'll love you despite what you do. You are a rebel. You're going to sin. You're going to distort the Sabbath. You're going to mess it up. You're going to serve. You're going to bow down to the God of productivity once again. And he says, I love you all the same. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest.
This is the gospel. That it's not our own good works that lead us to God, but it's what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. And so as we finish things today, let me just finish with just some practical recommendations for how we Sabbath. I haven't even gotten into a lot of this. Personally, I don't actually think that there is a law saying that we have to Sabbath for God to be uh, for, for God to love us anymore. If you have more questions about what I think about like the theological ramifications of Old Testament and New Testament and how they work together, come to the Q&A, and Jonathan will explain those to you. <laughs> That's just my joke always, you know. Uh, you might think, practically, you might think, I don't have time for Sabbath. I'll, if I try to squeeze one more rock into this jar, we look at Sabbath like it's just another rock, just another task, and I have to take a day off? What? I'm going to break. And yeah, that's the point. The jars, the, the, the rocks aren't going to fit in the jar. They're just not. And Sabbath reminds you that you're limited, but God is unlimited. And so what it actually does, and you might need to contemplate this a little bit. I know I do. You might actually just have to start spinning a few less plates. Oh, that feels like death, right? You might actually just have to have a few less commitments. You might actually have to just do a few less things and enjoy being a human, it's cliche, but you're a human being, not a human doing, right? You, you might just need to figure out some more ways to be. On your Sabbath, my general recommendation to you is that you should take time off, even though it's like maybe not theologically required in that way, but you should take time off, and that time off that you take Find a way, church, this is so hard for us in a modern society, find a way to, for your life to look like these two words, unbusy and unhurried. When have you lived your life in a way that's unbusy and unhurried? That's rest. That's rest. When you're unbusy and unhurried. It doesn't mean that you can't do things. It doesn't mean that you can't do things around the house. You just need to be able to do them in a way that's unbusy and unhurried. And really, you should try to find ways to be unproductive. God was productive for six days, and then he was unproductive. And we would say, what a waste of time. But God values both work and rest. So find ways to be unproductive. Do something fun. Just a practical uh, throw-in. Get away from the screens best you can. Maybe you go hide your phone. Maybe you turn off the TV, whatever it looks like for you to be unproductive. For me, actually, I, I love watching TV. I only watch TV like one night a week, and uh, it's like very restful for me to watch TV. But then sometimes, especially if I binge, it is not restful. It's not the same thing as, uh, as reading a book or just being alone, just staring out the window for a little while, just hanging out with my family or my friends. I think that there's different levels that we can take here. And you'd really just have to figure it out. Uh, I just recommend practice. It's one of those, if you practice regular time away, you'll start to figure out what feels restful. Some of you are like, I have no idea what feels restful. And it's like, yeah, because you haven't rested, like ever, in your entire adult life. You've never like, taken a day off. You've always just thought about what you need to produce and what you need to finish. And it's hard. It's hard for me too, church. I'm, I'm there with you. God created a seventh day. Isn't that amazing? He did everything he needed to do, and then he created a whole nother day. 
and he rested. There was no morning, there was no evening, it was a day without ending. A temple in time, a day of rest and enjoyment. And Jesus came as the Lord of the Sabbath, and he calls us to himself so that he can receive rest, so that we can receive rest for our souls. And as we trust in Christ, we look forward to the day when he returns, and God's Sabbath rest fills the earth, and we get to enjoy the Sabbath in our work. We get to enjoy being completely, understanding God's complete approval of us as we do things, as we live our lives, as we enjoy his presence. And so until that day comes, we look forward to that day. And one of the ways that we look forward to that day is we know that there's going to be a feast that day. And until then, we take a a small sample of that feast, reminding ourselves that he's coming and we'll get to enjoy his presence in full. And so we take a communion meal each week because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a piece of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And as we take the, the, the bread and the cup Each week we're being reminded in a physical way that Christ's sacrifice was for us. So church, let's stand and prepare our hearts to receive the communion meal. Father, as we we approach your table, we pray that you will help us to come to Jesus, that you will help us to, to run to him, to to see what he has accomplished for us, to understand the love of God that goes far beyond the love of productivity, that helps us to know that you care for us. And God, we pray that as we take this meal, that our hearts will be pricked. God, I pray that we will be people who demonstrate with our lives what you've theologically shown us in Christ, that the work is finished. And help us to know that today. God, we pray that you'll speak that over us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.